0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: Oh, you want to hear my birthday? Yeah. Okay. Um, so did you guys have a good time at my 40th birthday party? Yeah. It was so yeah.
0: Nice. It was awesome. And, you know, Shane, I have to say, you're looking really great for your age. Well, thank <laughs> you, Tamara.
2: <laughs> That's what, I'll tell you my secret. Moisturize.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> you want to know my secret? What's your secret? Martini.
3: <laughs> well, Shane certainly partook of that. And I had a few of those. Yeah. Did it show? No, I no. It no, it I, but a I was
0: lovely, lovely okay. party.
3: It was a lovely party, and yeah. and I have to say, uh, and there... you
0: only turned thirty once. Oh, that's right.
3: Thank you, thank you, my dear. <laughs> and, and there's something uh, genuinely cool about. It. A black tie birthday party.
2: Yeah, I think so, too. And you both look great. Truly. Everybody looked really just splendid. But there's something nice about getting all fancied up and going to a party.
0: It's the first time in a long time I've been that fancy. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. It's kind of
3: birthday party as Whit Stillman movie. Yeah.
0: Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Damn, we
3: should have filmed it.
2: (laughs) Next time. Turn 50. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the "Who Hacked My Ballot Box" edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. Uh, I hope nobody's hacking my ballot box. I vote in the Washington. I vote in Washington D.C., so my vote doesn't matter.
0: That's right. I mean, your ballot box is sunk to start yeah, with. Totally. Yeah,
2: totally. I mean, you could hack my ballot box, and nobody would even know because, like, it's like you know.
0: Unless the Republicans won, that would not be credible.
2: You know, that's the thing that that would be the one thing if you were hacking an election system. Do not try and skew the results
3: in Washington, <laughs> Washington D.C. Right, right. Democrats have to win 90 percent of the vote or else it's not – it's just not believable. And, and that
0: woman who plays the trumpet, Faith, she has to get a few votes too. Yeah. Is that a real person? Yeah, she's a real Faith person. Faith is a real person.
3: Mm-hmm. Her posters go up
2: for mayor every four years. Mm-hmm. And she actually plays the trumpet?
0: Mm-hmm. Not I've, well. I've seen it with my own eyes. Wow. I here should, in DuPont Circle. I
2: should probably know that as a 20-year resident of the District of Columbia. <laughs> but sorry, Faith, if you're listening. Uh, and hello, all of you out there. Those, of course, my good friends, Tamara kaufman Woodis and ben Woodis. Hello, guys.
3: Hey. Hey, Shane. But no Susan today.
2: No Susan. Uh, Susan is away. Uh, and we should say at the top of the show, we're going to be away for two weeks after this episode. We're going on various vacays and summer hiatus.
3: So you'll be able to tell... Uh, how impactful rational security is because our security dialogue is going to go completely irrational yeah. in the absence of this yeah. podcast. The
0: nation as a whole, I am sure, will get dumber yeah. in our absence. We in upon- fact, yeah. they might get dumber <laughs> regardless of our absence, but I think it's a good bet the next two weeks will we'll s- be
2: We're sorry, America. <laughs> we'll come back in two weeks to rescue you, but we need a break. Uh, this week on the show, in the wake of the suspected Russian hacking of the Democratic National Committee, experts warn that voting machines could be the next target. The U.S. begins airstrikes against ISIS and Libya, and we're going to talk about what's on our summer reading list, which hopefully will be a little bit shorter after the next two weeks are over. Um, so let's start with this question of um, hacking, hacking the election. So obviously the big story for the past 10 days or so has been uh, what is suspected to be the Russian hacking of the DNC leak of emails to WikiLeaks. I think since we talked about this in the show last time, it's now been confirmed that the DCCC, which funds House of Representatives races, was also hacked, and a uh, uh, campaign system used by the Clinton campaign, but houses of the DNC, was compromised. It looks like it did not affect anything broader inside the Clinton campaign itself. But this is clearly broadening, and a lot of experts now are talking about uh, the risk to voting machines. In fact, the Aspen Homeland Security Group put out a letter last week. People like Michael Chertoff, Michael Hayden signed this uh, warning that, look, you know, if hackers are breaking into the DNC and stealing emails, what's to stop them from trying to manipulate vote counts? So this is an interesting moment for this to come up, but the risk, or the fear of hacking the election and hacking voting machines, electronic voting machines, is nothing new. I mean, it's, it's been you know 15 or so years that people, I think, have been warning about this. There have been groups that are or older than a decade um but what i found so interesting about this was that it's coming up now in the context of i think that we have seen both the the capabilities of russian hackers but also this fear that they're actually going to go there and try and meddle in the election that seems to be uh, uh giving rise to this concern so in the interest of scaring the crap out of everyone I thought I'd just talk about a couple of ways that you could actually hack the election system briefly.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's do that. Can I just point out, though, I mean, I think what's – one of the things that is starting to scare the crap out of people here Mm -hmm. is that it's not a shift in tactics or a shift in capabilities, but it's a shift in intent. Mm -hmm. Um, And Admiral Rogers spoke to this uh, in an interview with NPR earlier today, basically saying what's changed here is not hacking – but that it's not hacking about getting information or even exposing information. It's a hack. It's a covert action. It's a hack designed to do something in another society, and that is very new, and that's that's kind of scary. Yeah, and I think that, let's
2: let's talk about that some more too before we even talk about individual ways that you could actually do this. But, I mean, my what I've been sort of struck by, I think Roger's really hit it on the head better in that NPR interview than I've heard other people say it, is that, we're sort of seeing the lines be reset, right? And, you know, if Russia is behind this, as I think most people suspect they are, it's this willingness to do it and potentially even to do it knowing they might get caught, uh, which I find, you know, so, uh, you know, troubling, but also really, you know, very telling that this seems to be now a new domain into which, you know, countries feel that they're free to move. We would say, you know, we repudiate this kind of action. We would never do this. Wh- would we say that or we might say that's it. well it's an interesting question would we say it or would we not say it i mean if we kind of we accuse russia of doing this and say that the election system in this country is should be off limits the way that we we condemn economic espionage are we therefore preemptively prohibiting ourselves from ever doing it in a country i mean our intelligence community has a long history of messing with elections and propping up and overthrowing governments um so would we be sort of tying a ham behind our back. That's one question. You know, the other is, you know, are these experts right that there is so much risk in the system that we simply can't afford to have the administration take a pass on this one uh, and sort of quietly hint that it was Russia? But no, we need him to come out, the president to come out like they did with North Korea and Sony and say, this will not stand. This is one of those territories that we we put a fence around and say, you don't, or at least you don't do this to us.
3: There, there I mean, there's, first of all, I, I think it is not necessarily pure hypocrisy for us to take the position uh, without saying it would never be appropriate for anybody to interfere in an election in another country that we would never want anyone to do that to us. I mean, that's our position about drone strikes. You know, it's we accept as in principle that if a country is unable or unwilling to manage a threat uh, emanating for its territory that we reserve the right to conduct operations on the soil of that country, but we have air defenses to prevent anybody from doing the same thing to us. Now, I do think it is reasonable in this case to take a categorical position and say uh, we would not, as a doctrinal matter, uh hack electoral vote counting machines in any country in order to uh, adversely affect the results of an election.
0: Well, look, I think we can say that. I think it's questionable whether it means anything for us to say that. I, But I think that there are two different policy questions here that are being a bit conflated. One is the norm development around cyber, which we've talked about on the show before. And so you can say, well, it would be hypocritical for the United States to say, this must not be done, you know, and try and establish a norm. Or maybe it's not even appropriate for the United States to try and establish that as a norm. You know, you may it, it is against the norms of the international community to hack ballot boxes or to interfere in domestic elections. It Would feel, uh, not credible, I think, given the history of the US intelligence community, even if this is something that a US government claims we will never do from now into the future. But the other, the other policy argument is not a normative one. It's about deterrence. It's about saying, look, we don't want people to do this to us. It looks like the Russians tried to do this to us. And so we have to make sure that nobody ever tries this again. And the way we do that is by shaming them publicly, you know, engaging in punitive actions, perhaps both overt and covert punitive actions. We establish deterrence. That has nothing to do with norms or righteousness or hypocrisy. It's just part of homeland defense. And I think that's a very appropriate response.
2: Yeah. And and, and do you guys, I mean, what's your feeling based on past actions we've seen in terms of like the Sony hack and when Obama called out North Korea and also putting this obviously in a different context that this is not our relationship with North Korea, our relationship with Russia is at stake here and it's a much more complicated one. What odds would you guys lay on Obama coming out? probably won't do it before he goes on vacation, but – and saying, yeah, Russia did this, and here are going to be the consequences for it.
3: Uh, So I think the – first of all, if there's an attribution, I suspect it will be by the FBI, not by the president. Um, But he attributed to North Korea,
2: and so did Jim Comey in the last –
3: Right, although I think – I mean did Obama make a – a, yeah, a, he a did. before Jimmy coming,
2: it was his last yeah. press conference of the year before uh, Christmas, uh, for holidays.
3: So I, I think the the likelihood of a direct attribution immediately is pretty low, and uh, I'll I'll eat these words before the end of the week, maybe. <laughs> but the reason is that you, I'll be
2: on vacation; it doesn't matter. You,
3: <laughs> you can't attribute and then not announce something retributive, right? And figuring out what uh, our response is going to be is actually really hard. And so, so as not to look like an anemic response, it's better to have a pending investigation until you figure out exactly what you're going to do in response. And so, my guess is that you don't, uh, you just have a continuing trail of Uh, background, high-level attributions rather than anything official. But that's just my guess.
0: I, I think that's exactly right. I think what's probably going on inside the White House right now is that they've made a request to Cyber Command You know, to give me options, retaliatory options and to treasury and others, you know, if we wanted to sanction, who would we sanction? How would we sanction under what authority? And they're, they are teeing up those options. And as soon as they have something that they're comfortable with, then they'll come out and do it as a package. And I think it would be much more impactful that way. But again, you know, that's assuming that they agree with me that the primary imperative here is to establish deterrence. Right.
3: And they may not. They may, they may think that the primary, our uh, goal is not to screw up cooperation in Syria, right, right? with uh, – Boy,
0: you know, I think that would be so <laughs> misguided, though, I have to say, because the Russians have demonstrated over and over again that they're perfectly willing to screw with us in one domain while they cooperate with us with a smile on in other so domains. And we look like our, Well, right, but our inability to um, – to uh, stovepipe a little more, I guess, <laughs> you know, the way they do, I think really hampers our effectiveness.
3: So what do you think the appropriate response looks like?
2: Yeah. You're, you're the secretary advising the president.
0: Um, well, OK, so we don't we don't know what the evidence looks like on attribution. But if you can identify specific entities or individuals, government or non-government to sanction, that would be awesome. Um, but I actually think that the most important component of the response is some form of uh, of cyber retaliation mm-hmm. um and so, and that might take a little time to tee that up, right and uh, but you want to do it in a way so that the Russians know that it was you uh, and that it's impactful but you know but not escalatory, like every um like a traditional military form of retaliation that's meant to establish or reestablish deterrence. And that's precisely the challenge in these situations is that you want to respond in a tit-for-tat way but you don't want to get into an escalatory spiral. And so you have to calibrate your response pretty carefully. Um, And I don't know enough about the cyber possibilities here to know what's even on the table, but that to me is a challenge.
3: I actually really disagree that the primary response should be cyber. I think the primary response should be public. Um, And the thing about a cyber response is that by its nature, it tends not to be public. It tends not to be something you claim credit for. And I think it's important if we are going to publicly attribute this to Russia that there be public consequences for it. Um, So
0: what are the public consequences that actually have a deterrent effect? I mean, whatever sanctions we might impose, they'll say, oh, sanctions, shmanktions, we're already sanctioned for Ukraine and, you know, we don't care about that. So
3: I would uh, consider uh, additional aid for Ukraine. I would consider, um, uh, you know... Some a, a movement of 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 materials to Estonia latvia, and Lithuania mm-hmm. I, I mean I, 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 I think the point is that we do not reserve the response to the same domain that the attack took place in. We, and if, if you meddle in our election system, you will pay for it with something you very much care about. Wow. So, so Eastern Europe.
0: Okay. So I, I understand the logic of that. I think that, um, number one, that goes entirely contrary to the approach that I laid out. It's a different approach, which is bleed the categories. You know, cost in one produces uh, concomitant cost, retaliatory cost in another, I was saying segregate, you know, and cooperate in the areas where you want to cooperate, where where you confront in other areas where you want to confront. So different approach. But more than that, thinking of it through the lens of this administration and its approach to dealing with adversaries abroad, that proposal Ben, I think, would get the response that that has more escalatory potential. That puts us on a slippery slope in Eastern Europe we don't want to be on. And that that's actually the last direction I suspect they would want to go.
3: Yeah, but the thing is, the the, the problem is that if you reserve the, the, the response to the cyber domain, you essentially preclude a public response. Um, well, I at, didn't
0: say only in the cyber domain. I said you want to do some public stuff, but the most important thing is to do something in the cyber domain.
3: Right. So – I think you, you clearly want to let them know we have the capacity to respond in the cyber domain, but I think they know that. But um, well, they,
2: they may not think that we're willing to do it.
3: Right. Although a- after Stuxnet, I, I don't think there's a lot of doubt around the world that the United mm-hmm. States has the A, capacity, and B, willingness to... Uh, do stuff in the cyber domain. And there's no
2: doubt about that with the Russians anymore, particularly after they'd knocked out the lights in Crimea.
3: Right. I mean, and, and So
2: maybe we're all at sort of a plane where we're like, yes, we are willing to shoot at each other.
3: And so I think I think to me the the relevant question is, when we've caught you, will you pay a price? You know what I would do?
2: What would you do, Shane? All right, this is the thing. I've been thinking about this. <clears throat> I think you dox the shit out of Vladimir Putin. I think you find... And I know, I, I don't know for a fact, but I would believe we have this information about um, mistresses, uh, how much money he actually has, anything just embarrassing. And you just leak it. Wow. You just straight up leak it. Like, you don't even have to leave it. You, don't have to, you don't have to put it on CIA.gov. But you find a way to kind of, like, do an information operation analogous to what was going on. If you. only
0: there were uh, an international, independent platform where you could dump that kind of embarrassing data.
3: Shitwestole.gov. <laughs> 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 right? I mean, it's like, come on!
2: Like, we know how to play. Oh, come on, we know how to play this game. We, I
0: like that idea. I mean, this, this seems to be like some like... buxom Ukrainian nurse. Yeah, straight. That's Qaddafi. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. That, I was just right. making God, a reference. So mixed
2: up. Nurses, but it's like some straight up, you know, propaganda embarrass him. Like find the thing, you know, that humiliates him. I mean, Donald Which Trump. Which
0: low brand vodka does he actually? Exactly.
2: Drink? Like find the thing that gets under his skin. The way it's like talking to Donald Trump about. You know, how much money he actually has how, or the size of his about short the, little fingers. How
3: about the outtakes from his martial arts videos? They are buried deep in a vault. Little, and you'll like, never find the them. The parts where he shoots the goals on the NHL hockey people and they stop them easily. Yeah, or the puck like,
2: flies into the crowd. Or when, that, or when the
3: wild cat wakes up on his shoulder and then bites him.
2: Yeah, I'm ser- seriously, we could do this. I know we can do this. Um, before we go on the next one, I do want to offer three ways to promise, because I'm actually studying, starting writing about this for this week, of how you could actually hack the election. Okay, I'm just going to give you three. This is in the interest of public service, not a roadmap.
3: Don't do this. Don't it would this. be bad.
2: But these are all things that people talk about publicly. Um, intercept ballots. So it turns out that in several states, if you are a military or an overseas voter, you can send your ballot in over the internets. You can email it. You can send it through a portal. You can send it over a digital fax. So you could intercept the ballot that way and change it, which would be pretty trivial, trivially easy to do. Um, that's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, exactly. but that
0: would it would have to be enough ballots in key states yeah, yeah, to make a Yeah, exactly, difference. exactly.
2: Or if you're in Alaska, where anyone can, by the way, did not know this, can send in a ballot via email. I'm not sure how many people are in Alaska, but you can do it that way. Um, here's a devious one. Changing something called ballot definition files. So a ballot definition file is basically what tells the electronic machine in this box, it's this candidate's name. In this, you know, in this precinct that you're in, these are the people who are running. It tells the machine how to read the ballot so that you know that when you're pushing you know Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, that's actually what's registering. So if at any point that machine has to go up to the Internet to get its ballot definition file and it downloads it, you could hit it there and corrupt it. That's what I thought was very interesting and scary. Or this is one of my favorite ones. Don't actually hack it at all. Just issue through some forum a credible claim, which the people who hacked the DNZ might be able to do, that you did actually manipulate the vote in a certain key county or a certain key state and let a certain candidate who has been saying this week that the election system is rigged do your work for you. I basically implant the idea um, as Just a spark and let Donald Trump create illegitimacy,
0: it. create a sense of illegitimacy Correct. without Correct. actually. And undermine
2: doing it. people's confidence that way. And, uh, yeah, right? Ooh. That's a
3: devious Ooh. one. Well, I have a proposal to fix the electoral system between now and November, which is. Uh, Don't hold back. No, no. This is this is a proposal for, for reform.
0: Non hackable reform.
3: Non hackable. Uh, I think we should vote using stone tablets and chisels. Totally. Um,
0: or it can be like uh, white stones and black stones in separate bags. You have to actually walk up and put the stone.
3: No, no. You should have to chisel the name of your candidate <laughs> in the stone. It would
0: be a very slow process.
2: I like it. It would make it um, really, really slow down and think about their choice. Exactly. Are you sure you want to do this? Because you have you know, another 10 minutes as you're chiseling a Trump to decide this. All right. We're going to see. Um, all right. Let's move on to our next topic. Um, the U.S. began airstrikes against isis Uh, In Libya this week... um, Granting
3: cert in Libya.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bombing cert in (laughs) Libya. Bombing
2: cert. Joke bombed, maybe. I don't know. That was a pretty good joke, Ben. Uh, Thanks. It was. Okay, well, you know... (laughs) Everything's a choice. Yes. Um, uh, so, tomorrow, this is not exactly unexpected. Obviously, ISIS has been, you know, gaining foothold in Libya. Um, there have been um, um, the military kind of had telegraphed that they were going to do this. But, you know, let, let's talk about the implications of this. One, one immediate thing that came to my mind, but, you know, is, is whether this is too little or too late or is this really like good? This is the beginning of the end for a safe haven in Libya for ISIS.
0: Well, so, you know, if one's concerned with um, ISIS's ability to sort of slip out from under the cordon being tightened around it in Syria and Iraq and find a new safe haven, then you can look at this and say, um, good, it's about time. Mm-hmm. And that does seem to be the lens of the U.S. military, who, as you noted, have been hinting in this direction for months. Policy options have been put before the president. It was reported uh, quite a while ago to go down this road. And, uh, and indeed there have been pressure from, uh, other allies, members of the anti-ISIS coalition who are supporting the efforts in Syria and Iraq saying, okay, we can't forget about ISIS in Libya also. Particularly, um, France, Italy, Greece, um, who are dealing with waves of, um, refugees, uh, fleeing violence, um, and taking off from Libyan shores. <laughs> To, to land on uh, on southern European shores across the Mediterranean, and and many of them sadly dying en route. But so as part of the broader migration crisis that Europe is facing, um, there's been growing pressure to deal with the ISIS presence in Libya. I think there are, there are a couple of things here that are worth noting. The first is that is the way in which the United States has structured and justified its intervention. So this is um, these are airstrikes that came in response to a request from the Government of National Accord, uh, which is the UN-recognized government in Libya, but it is one of three <laughs> governments uh, that are claiming legitimacy in Libya, and it certainly does not have control over the whole territory of the country. It's um, and so, Or even the capital. Or even the capital. Mm-hmm. So the forces... On the ground that are being supported by these US airstrikes are militias. They're not uh, a government military. And in fact, some of the militias that have been fighting ISIS in CERT are opposed to the government of national court. So it's a very, it, it's, um, it's interesting that the United States has chosen to engage, uh, against ISIS in Libya. At the behest of this government, and that implies that U.S. operations will be directed to support militias that are uh, acquiescing in the authority of this government or that may become part of this government's army uh, eventually. Um, and uh, and that means that some others, like General Heftar, uh, who's been a major rival of the government of national court, and he's been supported from outside the country by the government of Egypt, by the government of the United Arab Emirates, that his forces will not uh, get air support from the United States. At least that's how I read this choice by the U.S. government. So um, the U.S. had already kind of taken sides, diplomatically speaking, in this intra-Libya negotiation, but now they are using military force in a very carefully calibrated way um that seems to support the authority of the government of national courts so that, so, that's
3: so so help help me out here. Why among the three government options do does did does the UN favor this particular government and why are we betting on this particular government uh you know why not General Hector or um such a good name too. General
0: yeah. Heftar. Yeah, it's a good. Yeah, name. so I mean, he definitely has made a, a strong pitch over the last couple of years uh to be the strong unifier that Libya needs, but uh he hasn't demonstrated his ability to actually win anyone over to his side who wasn't already there. He is a strong anti Islamist force in the country. A lot of the effective militias uh and their political supporters are Islamists, somewhere along the spectrum, um, although none of them are as extreme as some of the Islamist militias we see fighting alongside Jabhat al Nusra in Syria, for example. Um, And so some of it is an Islamist anti Islamist battle that the United States and other international actors have not wanted to kind of choose sides on. The government of national court is actually the outcome of a long UN mediation process. And so it is more comprehensive, more pluralistic than the other claimants to the throne, if you will. It is a result of compromise, uh, and, um, and has laid out a process that would allow the inclusion of everybody else in the country, of other political factions in a final government. Um, but the, but the, the two competing Um, governments have rejected this national accord and the process that it lays out for for political transition in Libya. So this one is getting international support because it's the result of international mediation, because it's more pluralistic, because it's accompanied by a process of political transition, and also because as a practical matter – uh, the international community, you know, has to have some successor government that it holds responsible um, and that it can interact with and, and um, say, has authoritative right to the finances of the country, for example. And so this government has that role.
2: You know, when I, when I hear you talk about the, the the complexity of this situation on the ground with the multiple governments and the militias and these kind of things, I mean, it sounds like, and I hope this is not true, but, like, it sounds like we're going down the path of another Syria, Right, where it's like how do we distinguish between who we're helping and who we're not, and today they're our friend and tomorrow they're our enemy, and the alliances are always shifting. And you know, I, mean, I suppose part of this is a challenge for the intelligence community to understand the situation on the ground, but I mean, do you think that because it sort of seems to have similarities and complexity that it's destined to become like that, or is the Libya case a little bit like clearer, like we sort of do know what the lanes are and that we shouldn't be as worried about this becoming kind of the the sort of more chaotic sort of situation that it has been in Syria.
0: Well, I, you know, I don't know that we have. I, I think you're right that there are shifting alliances among very local militias on the ground in Libya, and that does create a lot of complexity. Um, but I think that the <laughs> the challenge for the United States. Um, is that it's starting out as it started out in Syria and Iraq, saying, okay, we'll provide air support and local forces are going to do the ground operations. But in Syria and Iraq, it became clear very quickly that those local ground forces couldn't be very effective against ISIS without ground support from the United States. And so we put in special operators and we put in trainers. And uh, and so I think that the worry is that we're on a slippery slope down that road in Libya also uh, and that this won't um, be simply air operations by the United States at the end of the day.
3: Do we deeply care who wins in Libya or do we merely care that ISIL loses?
0: Uh, We do very much care that ISIL loses. I think that's, as in Syria, that's the primary American interest. Um, But, in order for ISIL to lose, there has to be stable rule in the country that has enough of a basis of legitimacy that there isn't room for ISIS to remain. Um, If ISIS, you know, gets militarily pressured, melts away, and then comes back because the local governing authorities are seen as illegitimate by portions of the population, then we haven't solved the problem. So it's I don't think you can really separate defeating ISIS from political stability. And so you gotta you gotta care about who wins in the Libyan civil conflict because you want the guys to win to be guys who can actually hold more of the country together rather than less and not polarize it further.
3: Right. But that's an argument for somebody winning. It's not an argument for person A versus person B winning. And I, I guess Well, that's
0: I, that's why I ended the way I did. So General Heftar, for example, um, Has some military capabilities that are significant, but he is a deeply polarizing figure. He is um, from the East and he is really anti-Islamist. And if he were in control, he would carry out a major purge that would divide the country further. So, you know, if you're looking for somebody who can hold the country together, he ain't it. Um, and his strong anti-Islamist stand is one reason why he has the support of the Egyptian government and the MRI government um, but that's not a way to end the the civil conflict
2: um, and it also seems like both presidential candidates probably would be in favor of this move I mean Trump has been talking about bomb the hell out of ISIS Hillary screwed up Libya et cetera, and you know Presumably Hillary Clinton thinks there's unfinished business in Libya, too. So maybe this is something we can all agree on.
0: Oh, that would be so nice. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, to me, this uh, the announcement today was um, just uh, a sad vindication of the piece I wrote for The Atlantic back in March uh, about the slippery slope that is Obama's war against ISIS, um, that in being so worried about other slippery slopes in Syria and Libya, he created a situation that enabled ISIS's growth, that pulled the United States back in, and now we're on a slippery slope to another global war against terror.
3: Meta slippery slopes.
0: Meta slopes.
2: Jeez, it's like it's like those water slides that like you go down and there's like it goes in, and it goes down again. Like the yeah, long, you think long... it's over and it's, it's like It's just like not... the hydro tube at <laughs> yeah. a water park. You think you're just coming around the corner, you're gonna get spit out, but no, there's like a 50-foot drop before you get to the It's pool. like that
0: kind that looks like a massive toilet bowl. Exactly. And you just circle yes. around and around and then you fall.
3: We're in the toilet bowl. <laughs> Libya as massive toilet bowl. <laughs> by, by tomorrow it is. No,
0: no, no, no. That's a Daily it's Beast not
2: I <laughs> um, <clears throat> All right. Summer is nigh. Is it nigh or is it here? Does nigh mean it's coming or it's here?
0: I think nigh means it has arrived. It has
2: arrived. Well, summer is definitely nigh. Um, and that, with that comes summer reading lists. So we're going to be off for a couple of weeks, uh, and we're going to talk just a little bit about books that uh, we're going to be reading. Um, ben, you want to talk first about what you're going
3: to read? Well, so I'm not going to talk about a book. No. Uh, I'm going to talk or about uh, a paper. You're going to talk about a book you wrote? No, I did not. I have not written a book. This recently. is your summer reading? This. Well, it's a piece of summer oh, wow. reading. Uh, it's a paper uh, by one uh, Mara Revkin, uh, that's uh, R-E-V-K-I-N, mm-hmm. uh, called "The Legal Foundations of the Islamic State," uh, and it is published uh, by uh, uh, log rolling here for for uh, for Tammy's Center for Middle East Policy, the Brookings Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World, and what Mara has done uh, is to uh, write about the sort of law of life under ISIS uh, based on interviews with a very large number of uh, refugees from Iraq and Syria. Uh, Paper looks completely fascinating and frankly, unlike other things I have seen uh, related to this subject. So I'm very excited to read it. And um, uh, again, paper is called The Legal Foundations of the Islamic State, and it is available on the Brookings website. To
0: take it to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's some nice light reading for the beach. But that's what Ben likes to do on vacation: is read uh, yeah, on happy better. topics.
2: What are you? What are you going to read on summer vacation?
0: Um, so I, I tend to sort of pull books and put them in a pile, and then twice a year I go through my pile: the winter vacation and summer <laughs> vacation. And so my summer pile. Um, has at least three things in it that are kind of at the top right now. The first, as I mentioned before on the podcast, is Matt Fulton's uh, Active Measures, that spy thriller um, that we talked about a few weeks ago. I also have a, a book that I'm really excited about um, by Richard Engel, who is a longtime, I think, NBC correspondent in the Middle East. Um, and uh, he wrote his sort of summary memoir uh, of two decades in the Middle East called appropriately, and then all hell broke loose so um That's a good title. yeah, and it's gotten great reviews, and uh he was always such a great correspondent, and I'm really looking forward to reading that and then I know this has become a movie, and everybody knows about it, but I'm an idiot, and so I didn't know. Uh, that it was a movie starring Tina Fey, but I picked up at the bookstore "Whiskey Tango Foxtrot," yeah. which I'm also really looking forward to. So was it, always, it was called
2: something else as a book, though, right? I think.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. Well, this is unless they they changed the title um, in this new paperback edition. Right. It's titled "Whiskey Tango Foxtrot" this by David really Schaefer. Yeah, um, and uh, I picked it up and read the first chapter right there in the bookstore, and it pulled me right in. So. Nice.
2: Um, so on my list, I'm actually, I also want to read Active Measures, which looks really great. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, recommend one book, which I hope to get to uh, while I'm on vacation. If not, I'm going to get when I get back, but everyone should check it out. It's called Almighty, Courage, Resistance, and Existential Peril in the Nuclear Age by Dan Zak, who is a Washington Post reporter. Yeah. And it sort of tells the story of, I guess, like America's love-hate relationship with the bomb and largely through a group of peace activists who infiltrated... Uh, a nuclear facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, Dan's a beautiful, beautiful writer uh, and a, just a terrific guy and a great reporter. Uh, and this is his first book, and he's really excited about it. And I think it's going to be really good. I think our readers will like it too. Um, my mother is obsessed with Daniel Silva, the spy thriller writer. Awesome. Who is a, apparently a highly successful uh, writer. She thinks she's been telling me for ages that I need to read Daniel Silva books. And I've never really gone in for like the sort of you know, like the contemporary mystery stuff, which is stupid because I should be reading that stuff it's and like so Charles much McCary fun. and those guys,
0: especially on vacation, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you read John Le Carre, like why shouldn't you be reading those guys? Anyway, but there's a new one out called Black Widow, which uh, promises to be full of things like you know ISIS and encryption. In fact, and it says in the opening, and
0: I hope a kick-ass female heroine with that title. Well,
2: actually, I think it's it has it has a uh, it's his legendary spy and art restorer. It's a recurring Ooh. character called Gabriel Alone uh, who I guess ran Mossad (laughs) and like now he's an art restorer. My mom can't stop talking about him. It's like the best friends. Um, it's really good. (laughs) Um, she's like, oh, you gotta read it. And then, uh, but I'm reading now too. So this is going to tell you, this is going to tell you why I'm preparing for, uh, a future and covering, uh, what I presume is going to be a Clinton administration in Washington. Uh, I'm going back and reading, um, James Stewart's book, Bloodsport, the president uh, and his enemies. That is a very fine book. Yeah. That's, so this is a book about the whitewater scandal, (laughs) Um, and, you know, I tell you, I'm reading this because... Because if
0: you didn't get enough Clinton hatred in the 90s, well, you're going to you know, get it all over again. <laughs> so
2: I came sort of a, to political awareness in the 90s. I was in high school during uh, the Clinton years, and I graduated. And the first the first event I ever actually went to in Washington is I had a ticket where you could go and sit and watch the impeachment uh, trial for two hours. No way! It was like an hour or two hours. They rotated people in and out.
0: And you didn't <clears throat> run screaming out of the District of Columbia and never come no, back.
2: No. It was super boring, too. <laughs> It was so boring. It was like all procedural and this kind of stuff. But uh, I realized that uh, presuming that, that Clinton wins uh, and, and, and the war between Republican and Democrats has not lessened and uh, people are still crazy about the Clintons and the Clintons are still crazy about all their enemies, that I need to just get get brought up on all of the nuances of that. And you know,
3: Well, the other book in yeah, that – It's the, a great book too. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> Bloodsport is a wonderful book. The other wonderful book about the Clinton scandals – uh, that is just reads really well in retrospect is Mike Isakoff's book, Uncovering Clinton, about the Clinton sex scandals in particular, uh, and um, uh, that remains one of the uh, great works of scandalography uh, and is very worth reading in retrospect.
2: This is another reason why I have to be up on these books because people like you know Izakoff are going to have a built-in advantage because they remember all this stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you
0: got to catch up. You man. got
3: another
2: shorthand, man. You got to be there. You got to so you can hear
3: those dog whistles. That's in right the night. When, when Paula Jones comes back into prominence
2: Talk. as she'll, a
0: Fox News, she'll be host. calling.
3: She'll be calling Mike Izakov, not you. That's right. No, but I got, I'm i going to be
2: up on this and be like, remember that part, Paula, that no one else pays attention Anyway,
3: <laughs> it's a lot of fun.
2: James Hurtt's a very good writer, and uh yeah. Yeah. Didn't you how cheap real estate was in Arkansas, too? Yeah. Yeah. Man. Should have, I mean, can't wait until we get to the cattle futures. Anyway. All right. Uh, let's move on quickly to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you have an object? I care?
3: do. I have an object lesson from this weekend. I uh, have never it, done this segment. So, you know, Shane had a dinner this weekend to celebrate his 40th birthday. His 30th birthday.
0: Thank
3: you, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. His, his 30th, 40th, 30th birthday. Oh, shit. And, um, uh, there was a moment of drama in which a wig was thrown and Shane put on the wig and I caught the moment on my phone. Uh, so if you want to see an image of Shane Harris in a tuxedo, in a wig, Preserved
0: in infamy for all time.
3: With a genuinely confused expression on his face. Our show page has it. Um, uh, uh, That is absolutely his real hair. Um, Sure. (laughs) Sure it is. (laughs) I
2: just love it. I think we should just let it go unexplained, the idea that at my 40th birthday we're all wearing tuxedos. Someone... Ripped off a wig and threw it at me. Yeah,
0: I think that is unexplained. Yeah. Actually, just, I think we can we're just going to let way. that
3: we're just mull gonna... that over. <laughs> Imagine what you will. And if you're the listener who threw that wig, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hats off! Hats you. off, man! Wigs <laughs> off! Wigs
2: off! Uh, okay, uh, I guess I'll do my object now. Uh, so I'm just going to rub it in here. Um, I'm going off uh, to Maine for two weeks. Uh, and this is a photograph of the house where we'll be staying.
0: I'd just like to say, Shane, that I hate you right now Thanks. with a passion. Thanks. And I,
3: I want to say, a little cottage perched on the edge to of all of our cyber uh, active um, uh, listeners. I'm calling on you all to hack Shane's vacation <laughs> and cause a cybersecurity incident at that beautiful house. Um, if anybody can take down Shane's house. Uh, with it's the
0: listeners of this podcast yep. sure.
2: there is a wi-fi connection
3: <laughs> yep so take it down what's the name of the town
2: it's a tiny island off the coast of maine called monhegan right
3: so if, if we go through this whole week and monhegan maine has had power the entire time and communications have not been cut i'm going to be extremely disappointed in our readership so you know we have
0: faith in your capabilities, listeners. Just
2: to set some ground rules, uh, um, they might not know if they had lost power communications because the electricity does sometimes just go out <laughs> during the day. Um, it does you, happen. You but, are
0: so looking forward to that.
2: But fair, yeah, I am looking forward to that. But fair warning, these people live on a tiny island 12 miles out to sea and like will shoot you if you take their lobster traps. So I'm just saying. There maybe was a person who used to run the post office on Monhegan who may have worked for a certain three-letter agency. If they have any attribution capabilities on this <laughs> island, which they may, don't be surprised if, you know, you see a lobster boat and a shotgun pulling
3: on Do out not right. be cowed, listeners.
0: Then <laughs> <laughs> you're really goading them. Proceed with caution, Proceed folks. Proceed with caution. And enjoy your summer vacations wherever they may be, even if they're inside the bellway.
2: Indeed, indeed. Um, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive at spaghetti on the wall productions.com. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Learned that phrase this week, podcatcher. Ah. I like that, podcatcher. Is that a thing? I should probably know it's that. It's a
0: thing now because thing you've
2: now. made it a thing. just made
3: it a thing. I'm going
2: to call it that, yeah. Uh, uh, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out a lot. And thank you to those of you who have been leaving them. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L security, and we'll try to get to some of your questions when we come back from summer break. Let us know what you're doing, by the way, on your summer vacations uh, and maybe what you are reading as well. We can talk about that in a couple weeks when we're back. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Vladimir Putin and the Ballot Box Burglars. No, Ooh. by Vladimir
3: Putin and the Podcatchers. The Podcatchers. Yeah, I
2: like that. That's good. You know, it's like pod people. Yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of a Soviet.
3: Really.
2: wasn't like... That- Body snatchers. Body yes, snatchers. you yeah. see where I'm going. Yes, yeah. I yeah, got yeah. it. Okay, good we're connection, all we're, Shane. Okay, we're there. It's yeah. great. <clears throat> no, of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan. You know that. Who, um, if she is catching any pods out there, it's probably rational.
0: Actually,
3: theory. she's been catching a typhoon. Has yeah. she? Yeah. Typh- a, oh, really? Yeah. Just this the season. Oh, wow. Oops. Big big typhoon hit hit Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Sophia appears to have survived. That's good. We need to keep playing our music every week. On behalf
2: of my friends, Tamara kaufman Wittis, and ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. Have a wonderful summer break, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.